This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. So guys, how many international incidents can you think of in history that have actually been named after events from Bond films? Or after Bond films themselves. I mean, Bond films have always been creatures of their time, but they've always taken reality like a step beyond. I think this past week is a little too close to home. Can anybody think of like an international incident or a national security incident that's other than this week that's actually named for a Bond film? Not off the top of my head, but I will say it's very appropriate that in 2019, life is imitating art. I think that's right. And we have a number of candidates for Bond villains at least circulating these days. So I'm sure this isn't the, mean, other, the first. Other than Steve Mnuchin's wife. <laughs> <laughs> a number of candidates circulating these days. Yeah, but where's Daniel Craig when you need him? <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the Skyfall edition. I'm Benjamin Wittes doing my best Shane Harris impersonation because Shane is on vacation. Uh, Susan is also on vacation, so I'm joined here in the Jungle Studio by Tamara Wittes, Quinta Jurassic, and Scott Anderson. And uh, hi, guys. Hey. Hello. Hello. So we've got a bunch of stuff on the show today. Uh, but aren't we supposed to, like, do some banter first? You guys are supposed to have cut me off by now, and we're supposed to be bantering about stuff? Well, I'm sure there'll be plenty of bantering to come. I'm I'm still thinking about Daniel Craig. It's a little distracting. No, because, like, <laughs> by this point, we're supposed to be bantering with Shane and making funny jokes. And then he's eventually supposed to cut us off and say, on the show today. <laughs> but now, like, you guys are just making me talk. Well, yeah, Shane we're... took all the whiskey with him, unfortunately. So no, I think we're a step behind. <laughs> Come on, Quinta, help me out. <laughs> it's just not the same without Shane. We miss you, Shane. <laughs> All right. On the show today, a major nuclear explosion in Russia, and it seems to have been named for a Bond film. International incidents in Hong Kong and Kashmir, and the United States is AWOL. And what happens if you have a impeachment inquiry and nobody notices? All right, let's start with this uh, nuclear incident in Russia, which, you know, seems to be, first of all, dramatically undercovered. So, Scott, get us started. Like, what happened? Like, what blew up? How much nuclear material is being spread around? And how many dead scientists are there? And, and what do we, we believe? 
<laughs> we we are told where that, is James Bond here <laughs> when you need him? The one thing that we can be that we are told that we have a number of I think is the number of dead scientists at this point, which I think is at seven. A lot of the other factors, as far as I'm aware, we're having mixed reports or without really clear reports about what the full consequences of this are of uh, this explosion. Well, from what we can tell from media reports, this appears to have been a test of a new type of nuclear delivery vehicle, uh, something like an ICBM, although it operates a little differently. That's designed to defeat air defense systems by essentially kind of coming in at a lower orbit, kind of unpredictable routes, if it only kind of steers itself in the air and then deploys multiple little projectiles and warheads, presumably. It's like uh, a that nuclear MIRV? Kind of like a shotgun that sh- dries itself, I think, as far as yeah. I can tell, uh, making it much harder for air defense kind of to shoot missile it down. type thing, right? Exactly. But whereas a lot of other uh, missiles travel pre- predictable uh, routes and make it easier to intercept, these are harder to intercept because they are both self-driven and have these multiple kind of elements that break off. Okay. From my non-expert understanding, I may be getting this slightly off. So can we first note that the Russian government, it took them a couple days, but they did come out and release a few details about this, acknowledge that this was an accident that happened when they were testing something. Um, that in and of itself is unusual. But I think that it was also purposeful because of where we are on on nuclear arms control between the United States and Russia or in the world generally. I mean, I think the Russians wanted to acknowledge that they are working on new, more sophisticated nuclear armed missiles that could potentially defeat American missile defense. Um, And so in a way, you know, this is a a catastrophe and people died, but it's also something that they seem to be taking some pride in. And, you know, I – I think that it raises the issue of whether we are embarking now on an era of a new arms race. Well, before we get to the new arms race, I still want to understand as much as we can about what happened. We have some kind of explosion or crash or whatever of some kind of test object. There are some dead scientists. There does not appear to be, as with Chernobyl, a major plume of radiation that's kind of traveling its way over Scandinavia or anywhere else. So, Quinta, can we assume that this is a relatively localized thing that really sucks if you're in northern, in a particular area of northern Russia, but probably isn't much more important than that? Or should we assume that this is a sort of major nuclear accident of some sort? I don't want to be definitive in case more information comes out, but I agree that the information that's available so far, both provided by the Russian government and that that's available via satellite imagery um, and analyzed by scientists, does suggest that it is, first off, it is definitely at a lower scale than Chernobyl, which killed like 30 to 40 people immediately. As Scott says, it's only a handful of deaths, which still bad is nowhere near the scale. The radiation level in the town nearby apparently did spike up to about 20 times higher than the normal level of gamma radiation, but not so high that it would be deadly for someone living in the area. Um, There are reports that people went out basically and immediately bought iodine, but it's not so bad 
that, you know, everyone needs to evacuate as they did in Chernobyl. That said, well, Tammy is absolutely right that the Russian government did eventually, you know, step forward and give kind of an explanation of what's going on. It did take them a couple days. And the New York Times has reported that people not only in the city nearby, but also in St. Petersburg and Moscow were very frustrated with how little information the government had given them. And it seemed like the government had been affirmatively misleading people by suggesting that, you know, they were conducting an emergency test. Uh, and that was why, you know, the televisions went down, that kind of thing at first. And I think there's, it's worth noting a, a technical part about this, because there's a little confusion about what the nuclear element of this is that actually detonated a caused this accident. There's two kind of nuclear parts of this missile system in theory. One, it can carry nuclear warheads, which would have a much larger explosion than this, presumably, if they operate effectively. But it also has a nuclear reactor that's powering the missile. That's what gives it the ability to fly around regular routes, maintain its uh, propulsion in the air for an extended period that makes it so unpredictable and hard to block. And so that appears to be the nuclear element that detonated here. So it's not the same as if a power plant went down, which is a huge scale nuclear program uh, or, or device. It's not the same as a nuclear weapon. Maybe the closest parallel is like a nuclear submarine, but probably much smaller scale than that. I don't know exactly how big these missiles are, but my guess is it's not nuclear sub sized. So key question the last time you know, when the Soviets lost a nuclear sub and we went to try to grab it, this had major implications for Freedom of Information Act law because it gave us Glomar, right? <laughs> so are we going to have like the Skyfall doctrine that emerges out of this nuclear accident? And what area of law will that cover? Then we can neither confirm nor deny that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we need to go further than that. I, I had Well, I had a realization because I recently had the occasion to watch Hunt for Red October again, the kind of classic Tom Clancy-based movie where, you know, the movie's perhaps, perhaps a little better than – or the book's a little better than the movie, but both not too bad from the earlier era. But I think it's really telling here the different approaches that Russia took in that hypothetical case in here. In that case, Russia was developing a super high-tech nuclear weapon delivery vehicle and what did it do in this hypothetical plot but was tracked a lot of reality? It kept it very quiet. It tried to say, hey, we want to have this capacity. We're going to keep it quiet until we have it developed. Here we're seeing the exact opposite. Putin came out over a year ago, I believe, and actually trumpeted this and three other delivery vehicles as part of a kind of a national platform, as Tammy was talking about, this effort to kind of say, we are proud, we have this capacity. And this system evidently is uh, one of the one that has proven the most problematic, is the furthest away from actual development and deployment. And this is another major setback for that program. So in a way, this is kind of a PR uh, setback for them, but also it reflects the fact that I think there's a strong element of signaling in a lot of its discussion of these weapon systems and the way it's deploying and developing them very much in plain sight as a way to put pressure on the United States as part of a, a broader strategic game, less about the use of the weapons than about the signal that we want to and are intent on developing the capacity, both for domestic audiences and international audiences. Although there's nothing quite like having a major accident in testing such a system to undermine your public claims that you have it. Well, at the same time, though, it shows a level of commitment and a readiness to invest. And I think that was clearly part of the public signaling 
around this accident, see what, you know, what we're willing to do. We're even willing to lose nuclear scientists. Stop for us the sake before of we kill more of our nuclear scientists. <laughs> Right, right. So whether, you know, whether it's uh, wise or not, but I I actually think it's worth pointing out that this is the kind of signaling, this actually predates the Trump administration, the Obama administration had a kind of a standoff with the Russians over the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty. They accused the Russians of violations. The Russians refused to acknowledge they were violating. Obama considered pulling out, decided not to, and Trump announced at the beginning of this year, okay, you know, we're invoking the termination clause six months and we're done. And that just passed at the beginning of August. And so, you know, I'm not saying that the timing of this accident is deliberate, but what I'm saying is that the Russians have been using these developments that Scott was describing to signal for a long time that they're interested in negotiating a new agreement with the United States. And what's striking to me is that the Trump administration you know, as they do with everything, they sort of push it to the wall instead of saying, hey, what are these signals that they're sending us here? What opportunities does this suggest? How do we explore these? It's also all of the all of the um, policy on the Trump side is so crude that the Russians have little choice but to continue upping the ante. That's the same thing we've seen with the North Koreans. It's the same thing we've seen with Iran. Except in this case, we're dealing with, you know, two major global military powers who, you know, have the capacity to destroy the world several times over. And that has only been forestalled all these decades by their willingness to negotiate nuclear arms agreements. And, you know, this is a moment when that whole structure is really in question. I just think it's perfectly consistent with Trump's aggregate policy posture, which is that, you know, in every area, he his policies are bad for his base. And so why should that be different with respect to his <laughs> Russian voters? Okay, with with all respect, I'm, I'm really not concerned about his base. I'm concerned about like the future of life on no, Earth. No, 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 his I base, mean, the Russian state. <laughs> I, I get it. I get it. Like maybe I'm too much of a Cold War baby. But when we get to this kind of stuff, that's when I, you know, the levity goes out the window. Okay, but I want to ask an important question, Quinta. Is Skyfall the right name for this missile program? Oh, good uh, question. And uh, what sh- if not, what should it be called? Why is it? Why are we calling it Skyfall? Just because it fell out of the sky? Uh, no. <laughs> no. Bad, Skyfall, Skyfall is not the Russian name for this program. To be clear, it is the name that it has been given by NATO countries. So the Russians did not pick this name. So the the NATO officers who named it this have not seen the movie? Well, so this this gets to my next point, which Skyfall, for those of you who remember, is very much a Bond movie about the end of the international structure within which Bond movies made sense, right? It is a movie about the collapse of the United Kingdom or the slow fading away of the United Kingdom from the world stage and the collapse of this system in which it's sort of great power conflict that is driving things and instead a move toward a system that is just chaos all the time, that no one is in control. (laughs) And so it seems very apropos. At the same time, though, the Skyfall movie is about 
an embittered former insider who tries to blow up what he sees as a corrupt and failing system through the use of cyber terrorism. It's actually, it has nothing to do I'd with great power part. conflict. It has nothing to do. I mean, the old Bond movies had stray nukes, right? This is not that. <laughs> and so it's actually, it, of all of the Bond movies, it's probably the least apropos, I think. I mean, the other piece of fiction that this obviously reminds me of is the HBO miniseries that recently came out on Chernobyl, which I've got really deep into. And if anyone hasn't watched it, I would highly, highly recommend it. One of the things that is really well done about it is how deep it goes into not just the kind of, you know, disaster porn, but like what it felt like to be in the Soviet Union for many of the characters in Ukraine during this period in which the Union was falling apart clearly and that the Chernobyl is kind of this demonstration of the failure of the Soviet government. And one of the ways in which that is expressed is obviously the government's just refusal to give people information about what the hell was going on. And watching that show today, I think one of the reasons why it really resonated is that there is an obvious echo in terms of the Trump administration's refusal to acknowledge reality in a lot of circumstances. But it speaks more generally to just what happens when the government no longer is an entity that has any benefit of trust in any form. And so the combination of this incident happening, the Russian government trying to paper it over for a couple of days, then President Trump tweeting that the United States has, you know, similar, more advanced weaponry, which I don't, I haven't seen any corroboration of that whatsoever. It just, it sends a very bleak message. Yeah, I, it's interesting where you went with that, because I was actually thinking that the Russian government had to deal with this accident and with these deaths in the face of ongoing protests in Moscow involving tens of thousands of people that, you know, so they are actually facing a renewed domestic political crisis, you know, at a level they haven't faced in quite a while. And it actually points up their need to be more forthcoming with their own public about what's going on. And I was wondering if that was another reason for their relative relative transparency. And I think, you know, another angle of this also is, is just the way the Russian government projects itself domestically. There's an international audience, but there is this domestic audience. And a lot of that is about this new chauvinism, this new uh, power of the state, uh, the element of kind of infallibility that's important to its control of domestic control, uh, of its domestic control, and also important to a degree of national pride, Putin's ability to manipulate events in Syria and other contexts. This is a big dent in this, these sorts of failures. And, and I think it goes back to this broader strategic question that Tammy really raised uh, in the beginning of our conversation about how these fit in with the past history we have of treaties and other arrangements to try and limit the development of weapon systems like this. The INF Treaty expired August 2nd. Um, this has been something that's probably been on the rocks for a while. Uh, I wrote a bunch of articles why I wasn't sure the president necessarily had legal authority to do it, but he did it. No one really complained. And the uh, what it came out, uh, it was ultimately about not just U.S.-Russian relations, but other parties as well. INF treaties focused on intermediate range weapons that were used in a variety of, or could be used in a variety of strategic contexts, particularly in relation to China. The next treaty up on the docket is the New START treaty, a treaty that's going to expire in a few years if it's not extended. And that is one that applies to a variety of weapon systems and can apply 
potentially at least, to some of the other delivery vehicles that Putin has been kind of advertising, although not necessarily this one. And there's a great article on this, I want to say in Lawfare from this week, by Pranay Vadi, a former um, Obama administration official who's worked on these issues. The one thing I think is worth bearing in mind is that it's not clear to me that developing and putting a huge amount of resources into these systems is actually really even in Russia's interest, even a chauvinist Russia that's preparing for a confrontation with the United States, because these aren't the tools it uses to reject power in the way that power is meaningful for it. Russia gets power now through mercenaries in Syria and through arrangements with dictators and through an ability to project manpower and force in smaller scale conflicts that, that reinforce state true. actors. That was true during the Cold War also. I don't disagree, but it may, it, it's not necessarily true. But I don't think they're as worried about the direct confrontation in the United States in regards to like a nuclear confrontation as much as they are competition around those resources. And so capping competition here is something that could be in the interest of both parties. And I think there is something about that, that solicitation to try and get show to the United States why it's in, in its interest to try and cap Russia's advance on these systems. In other words, I'm not sure Russia is developing the system because it wants the systems. Again, I think it comes back to a lot of signaling. Okay. Well, speaking of great powers, chauvinism, and projecting power. um, I thought you were going to say speaking of the death of empire. (laughs) Um, No, these are actually – these are more about the reassertion of empire. Uh, The Chinese are cracking down or thinking about cracking down in Hong Kong. And India is thumping its chest over Kashmir. The United States has had relatively little to say about any of it. So first of all, are these Tammy related events or is this just two big things that are happening in spheres of interest other than our own that we don't have a lot to say about and probably shouldn't have a lot to say about? Or is this some or is there some real thematic connection between Kashmir and Hong Kong? Is there a thematic connection Maybe. If there is, I'm not sure it has that much to do with the United States. On the one hand, both of these crises have been long in the construction, long in building the sort of looming question of how Chinese influence over Hong Kong would be extended as the period negotiated by the British when they withdrew from Hong Kong, you know, starts to come to an end. That question has been on the table for a long, long time. And the Chinese have been working to extend their control, especially over dissident voices in Hong Kong for a number of years. The protests that burst out into the open this year were catalyzed by a particular legal proposal that would essentially enable the Chinese to arrest people within Hong Kong and subject them to Chinese justice. But, it, you know, it's one of those things where the kindling had built up and it was just a question of what spark was going to light the fire. And I'm not sure that anything the United States might have done or said would have prevented that fire from breaking out. Similarly, the Kashmir crisis, in a way, you know, dates back to the moment of Indian and Pakistani independence, but it also dates back to when Prime Minister Modi was first elected uh, in India. Th- this change in status of Kashmir under the Indian constitution is something that his party promised before he even became prime minister. And so you can even ask why did it take them so long? But here they've now finally gone and done it. And I, you know, what I would say is that these are two cases in which rising regional powers are feeling relatively strong both domestically and in their neighborhood. 
and therefore feeling that they can get away with extending their powers in ways that trod on international norms without facing much in the way of international backlash. Now, where does the U.S. fit in there? You know, in that unipolar moment that we enjoyed for a decade or two, the United States would have been the country to convene, you know, a coalition of the concerned or put these issues on the agenda of the U.N. Security Council and force attention to them put these countries in the hot seat to justify their behavior, that wouldn't necessarily have stopped either of these crises from erupting, but it would at least have created a degree of international accountability. I think what I notice here is not so much that these governments feel empowered by the lack of any kind of American attention. I think it's more that the lack of any American attention says something about where the United States is and how it's orienting itself internationally to the extent that that unipolar moment was over anyway. I think the behavior of the Trump administration here, not even paying lip service to these international norms, to American human rights norms that a normal U.S. administration would speak up for, it just exacerbates and accelerates the decline of America's role in world affairs. All right. So, Scott, I'm trying to imagine now a normal State Department in a normal presidential administration reflecting the sort of center of gravity of bipartisan foreign policy. And I assume that with both the Kashmir and Hong Kong events, the normal thing the State Department would do would be to look to traditional U.S. positions with respect to the issues in question and uh, kind of reiterate the traditional U.S. position on, say, Kashmir or on what the proper relationship between Hong Kong and China should be, and then say something about not killing people and everybody behaving with restraint. So what are those traditional positions if the president weren't saying, hey, we're just going to see what happens and let the Chinese do what they want to do? Um, like, <laughs> what, what, what are those what, normal things? Like, what would the normal U.S. statement on Hong Kong or Kashmir sound like? It's such a depressing question. <laughs> just good, so, like we're going to go back in time to when we had a normal State Department. You like, know, what does the statement sound like? What's our position? We, we've had a status quo in both uh, areas for several years now, a rough status quo. There's always been points of tension. And that's what we see a departure from. We see both of these kind of regional powers pushing against that. And I think there is a, a moment of opportunism, perhaps because the United States and the rest of the international community, absent U.S. leadership, is providing a little wiggle worm or maybe signaling that there is a little more wiggle room around them. I think the way to think of, best way to think of it probably is the United States approaches these through a couple lenses, three lenses really in the Kashmir context and probably two lenses in the Hong Kong context. The two lenses that are in both but in the Hong Kong context is that, one, there's a bunch of issues of domestic law in here. And those are things the United States probably would not normally weigh in on. How exactly Hong Kong and China uh, structure their extradition procedures and things like that aren't things that the State Department would normally weigh in on because we see these are, really are internal affairs for a foreign government. The other side of that is the human rights angle. And this is really a reminder about why human rights really is important for the United States, particularly from a policy perspective. Even people who are more realist or a little more critical of human rights as a dialogue. Human rights is a framework that lets the United States criticize how foreign governments interact with their own citizens. And it sets certain limits on that. And that's a valuable thing when you're a country that believes that people should be treated a certain way. 
in walking away from that, I think the Trump administration has kind of tied its hands and it's limited its ability to really engage in these sorts of dialogues because it's explicitly said, we don't care about human rights. We want different countries to be able to apply different standards. It hasn't embraced that 100 percent as sometimes some of its rhetoric implies, but it has kind of taken that sort of angle. Uh, and with the third lens, I'll say, which I think is most relevant for Kashmir, is that in Kashmir, you also have the added angle of great power politics. In China, there's not a real risk of another party intervening on Hong Kong's behalf. Uh, in in Kashmir, that's absolutely a risk. That is the risk, is that this is going to lead to a regional conflict between two potential nuclear powers. This has been a major concern for the United States international community for decades. You know, And that is the third angle through which the United States can look through. And frankly, that's the one in the Kashmir context that's going to dominate the U.S. attention. In the Hong Kong context, there's going to be a, a focus on the human rights angle in a normal context. But in, in this context, the United States has kind of tied its own hands. Yeah, I mean, I I would say that China is a factor in the Kashmir conflict as well, to the extent that a major Indian military mobilization in Kashmir would probably induce a Chinese mobilization on their side of the border with India. They have fought with India in the past. Like, we can't ignore that dimension of it. Also, that regional crisis could get much bigger relatively quickly in ugly ways. But I also think that the significance of what's going on in Hong Kong And the significance of kind of traditional American human rights discourse in situations like this gets to something broader about the U.S.-China relationship and, you know, and where human rights fits into American diplomacy beyond this sort of speaking for the values that are at the heart of who we are as a country, which you mentioned. And I think that that's that's correct. You know, but the United States traditionally, when people are out protesting peacefully in the streets – says that we support people's right to protest without commenting on the kind of the content of what they're protesting about or the merits of what they're protesting about. And so the absence of that here is glaring. And if the Chinese do what they seem to be preparing to do, which is use force ultimately to quell this significant sustained popular uprising – it will be like Tiananmen Redux. And if we think about what, you know, what was the United States' response to Tiananmen at the time, it was we support people's right to protest. You shouldn't use violence to shut down protests. Oops, you just used massive violence to shut down protests. We're really unhappy with you. So here's most favored nation trade status. Until, until we decide that we need to do business with you again. Right. And this is why I think these two crises are interesting test cases for the Trump administration, because they have only, with a very few exceptions, they have only criticized vocally at senior levels human rights abuses by adversary states, by Iran, for example. And they've had very little to say about human rights abuses in friendly states. These are two states that are neither allies nor adversaries. They are large. China's an adversary. Well, Okay, China is a competitor. Whether it's an adversary, I think, is a subject of a lot of debate. But I think there's no question that the relationship with China is complicated. It's a relationship of cooperation and competition. There are areas in which we try to undermine each other. There are areas in which we are very interdependent. These are two rising powers. And while they're not yet on par with the United States, they, in certain ways, they, they may aspire to be. And so... Where does human rights fit in these bilateral relationships to me is a really interesting question for any administration. And it's a particularly tough one, I think, for an administration that has such a a crude and instrumental approach to human rights generally. 
a more subtle administration would say, wow, talking about human rights in Hong Kong might give us leverage in our dialogue with the Chinese about other things we care about. Or it might conclude, as the Obama administration did in the first term, that we don't want human rights to get in the way of our dialogue with China. You know, but I think that this administration isn't even thinking in those terms. Yeah, and I, I will note that Wilbur Ross on CNBC said earlier today when asked what the U.S. position was on Hong Kong, and I quote, the question of it is what role there is for the U.S. in that manner. This is an internal matter. Oh, God, it's like we're <laughs> Finland or something. <laughs> and it's like the, it doesn't even matter what we say. And the amazing thing about that, obviously, is that Ross is leading the Commerce Department. The U.S. has been very hard on China in terms of tariffs, economic issues, and on this, just kind of a shrug. Quinta, didn't he also say uh, he was asked what the United States got in exchange for delaying the sanctions, and he just said, oh, I don't think we got anything? For the, delaying the tariffs. The tariffs. Yeah. I mean, there's there's a kind of, you know, tit for tat, you know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours relationship, except it's not really clear, as Ben is suggesting, what is and isn't being gained, what we want, what we don't want. I mean, at this whole time when the U.S. has... It's unstrategy. That's exactly. It's unstrategy. Exactly. I will say in Wilbur Ross's defense, it's not clear that he was awake for the entirety of the <laughs> I was going that, to say this you're is. You're defending I, I was going to say this is the first thing that anyone has ever said in defense of <laughs> and I note that it is uh, sardonic. One one point uh, less about the role of the United States and more about the role of censorship in both Kashmir and Hong Kong. I think there's something really interesting playing out. So, and disinformation. Yes, exactly. So Kashmir, there has basically been a complete blackout. Uh, the internet went down, landlines went down, TV channels were taken off the air. And there are some really amazing stories of what journalists have been doing to kind of keep information flowing through the region. But... The short version is that the Indian government is kind of doing it old school, just shut it down. The interesting thing, if you look at that in comparison to Hong Kong, is obviously there is still the Great Firewall limiting what kind of information people in mainland China can get about the Hong Kong protests. But the Chinese Communist Party has been taking an additional approach on top of that, as opposed to Tiananmen where they're just censoring all mention, they're actually affirmatively propagating disinformation. The New York Times has an amazing story about media in mainland China basically posting information saying that, you know, a picture of a woman who was injured, that she was actually injured by a protester who attacked her, claiming to post pictures of people who they say were protesters counting cash, insinuating that they're being paid. And so there's a really interesting contrast here in the sort of, you know, old school limiting communication in order to conduct this kind of operation, but also the very new school, rather than just limiting communication, also flooding the zone with garbage, basically. And it really seems like based on, you know, the posts that people see uh, from people in mainland China, it is working. So I think it's it's something to keep our eye on as this moves forward, because it seems to be a really effective strategy. I think that's right. I want to go back to that Wilbur Ross comment about the internal affairs point, because I, I really think this is, it goes back to this key framework uh, and this element question of human rights and these other really treaty obligations about, this is where international law enters in the equation, which is always my bugaboo. But I think it's an important one here. Human rights are not an in international affairs issue. They are things that foreign countries have agreed 
to abide by certain standards about how they treat people. That, by definition, under national law, makes it not an international affairs issue. It's a question of international concern about whether the country is living up to its treaty obligations. That's right. That should be concern for INF treaty. It should be concern for other treaties. And it should be of concern for human rights treaties. And the United States shouldn't let other countries get away with violating their treaty obligations and human rights treaties if they want them to abide by their treaty obligations in these other contexts. Uh, so it's not just a political element here. There is a question about to what extent are we going to hold them accountable for their prior commitments? And just to be clear, what Ross actually said today uh, was that, quote, nobody wants to take any chance of disrupting the Christmas season. Uh, and according to Politico, when the Commerce Secretary uh, said that Trump decided to delay some of the duties, he did so without getting any concessions from China in return. There was, quote, no quid pro quo, Ross said. Right, because it was a move that Trump had made, not realizing that it was going to harm the domestic economy. Hello? Right. So it was just something, it was just tr something we kind <laughs> of drifted into. And speaking into something we just drifted into, let's talk about slouching toward impeachment, where all of a sudden, the same investigation that we have been saying for uh, – months and months, is not an impeachment inquiry, and we're not going to have one. Uh, the chairman of the Judiciary Committee mentions in passing on CNN that actually it is an impeachment inquiry, or it's an impeachment investigation, or an impeachment proceeding. Quinta, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> I have no idea. I feel a little bit like I'm looking a gift horse in the mouth since uh, Susan Hennessy and I have been arguing since, you know, the day after the Mueller report came out that it was time for the House to begin an impeachment inquiry if it took its constitutional duties seriously. And so I'm conscious that now that I've gotten what I wanted, complaining about it seems a bit trillish. That said... I don't know how they could have done this in a way that was less exciting, interesting, morally important. It's just – it's like the equivalent of the sad trombone noise when <laughs> it should be something that is, you know, a rousing moment that they're, the House is taking on this constitutional responsibility and really – considering how to check a president who has, by any objective account, egregiously abused his power. And because they're the House Democrats, they just kind of squelched into it. Tammy, will you say a word in defense of the House Democrats I, on this? I will, actually. But I, I think there's a more fundamental difference of perspective here. Going back to the conversation that Susan and I had in a rational security episode, I think, four or so weeks ago, right after Mueller testified. I, I really think there's a difference between the sort of rule of law or legal lens on this issue and a political scientist's lens on this issue. I said then in that conversation with Susan that this is an impeachment inquiry. And that was before the court filing and before Jerry Nadler said it on TV. There is no formal requirement that anyone in the House stand up and say, yes, we are now beginning an impeachment inquiry. All of these oversight investigations can feed into articles of impeachment. And so whether you structure it as a Judiciary Committee oversight hearing or whether you call it an impeachment hearing, to me is, is a question of messaging and politics. And I recognize that for those who yearn 
for visible signs of the capital R resistance on Capitol Hill, it's not satisfying to see it go down this way. But given the political risk, and it is a real risk for individual House Democrats, many of whom just won their seats last year, to go down this road, this is actually the right way to do it, to do it soberly, to say, we're going to pursue things where the evidence leads us. And the other big thing that's changed, of course, is that since the Mueller hearing, we now have 121 House Democrats who have publicly come out. 123, actually. Okay. As of today, 123 who have come out and said they support an impeachment inquiry. A month ago, right before the Mueller hearing, it was, I think, around 60 or 70. And that is a significant change. And it gives the Democratic leadership in the House much more confidence going down this road. But they don't need to announce it with a trumpet blare. In fact, I would even say from a rule of law perspective, and you may or may not find this compelling, it bespeaks a certain confidence in their constitutional authority, in their ability to do their jobs and to do this in a way that is meaningful and significant, not to sort of shout it from the rooftops, but to just say, we're going to do this. All right. So okay. Scott, yeah, I'm, so, I do not so, agree with so that. Scott, between – uh, let's say zero on the one hand, which is Quinta. <laughs> I would which is, say like you, one. You, you, or one. You could not have done this in a less compelling way. And it Tammy, doesn't matter if say it's compelling. At, at, Just hey, get hey, it done. Hey, hey, hey. We're having <laughs> set Scott settle the fight here. And Tammy, who's like at an eight or a nine, this is a show of confidence in their constitutional authority. Where, where are you? Uh, I. Uh, that's a weird scale. Uh, <laughs> I will say. Uh, I would say Jurassic I am, I am, I am, I am in, in the middle, maybe leaning a bit towards Tammy's position. Um, I want to marry the political scientists of Tammy's perspective with a little bit of the legal perspective because I do think there's a legal logic behind this positioning that uh, we've seen the House Democrats take at this point. Uh, but it ties into that kind of perspective that Tammy articulated from a po- kind of policy perspective or political perspective. I'm really curious whether you're going to make the same argument that I was going to make. Here. Oh, I'm excited. So let, Maybe. Let, let, let's see. We'll see. I love when that happens. Um, I mean, I think the central logic is is that you have two potential grounds under which uh, the House Democrats could claim to be acting here. One is a broad set of oversight authorities that are pretty well accepted as a matter of practice, are increasingly contested by the Trump administration and their efforts to resist subpoenas on a variety of issues and brought into question, but pretty well established at least in practice up until in the last couple year or two. And then you have the potential for a more formal impeachment inquiry that would give additional legal heft to sort of arguments because you're doing something that's got more textual hook um, by doing an impeachment inquiry. I think the litigation strategy perspective, at least, that feeds into this would say, well, maybe there's a logic between trying to get a win for broader oversight authority first to say we can pursue all these activities as a matter of oversight without having to take the added institutional step. Then if you lose that argument somehow, it seems unlikely. But if you do, then you go back and you vote a formal House impeachment inquiry and you get another bite at the apple. So there is a little bit of a logic here. And and I should note a win on the strict oversight authority would apply to a lot broader congressional activity than just impeachment. So So I do think there's a logic on that. That is a super interesting argument and it is not at all the one I was going to make still a different argument in defense of what I agree with Quinta is a completely unprincipled position by the House Thank Democrats. You. However, I agree with Tammy that there's something to be said for the unprincipled uh, position. And here's, here's how I would get to about a five on this scale. All right. 
on the one hand, you have a lot of Democrats who want to, as one of them poetically put it, impeach the motherfucker. Um, on the other hand, you have poor Nancy Pelosi, and I don't mean to be sarcast sound sarcastic here because I actually think her her equities are very valid. And she has 40 House seats that flipped between Republicans and Democrats that she's got to defend. And she believes, I, I'm certain in good faith and honestly, that talking about impeachment and doing impeachment will not help the marginal Democratic voter. On the other hand, she wants to win certain litigations that can only be effectively litigated through the lens of impeachment. And there's one that they filed a couple of weeks ago on the uh, grand jury material in the Mueller report that is frankly unwinnable without an impeachment proceeding because of uh, the way the D.C. Circuit has thought about these grand jury disclosure matters. You need the impeachment proceeding. And so what do you do if you're Nancy Pelosi in that? You want to encourage this litigation. You want to go after the grand jury material, but you don't want to put your members in a position where they have to vote. Ah, now let's start an impeachment inquiry. And the answer is you don't have it. You just, as Tammy says, do the investigation and say in litig for litigation purposes, we're conducting impeachment proceedings. We're just doing the work. We're not going to have a big show of it. And by doing that, you ameliorate some of the pressure on the members. You may get the litigation advantage of, of having the impeachment inquiry. And as Scott points out, if you lose and they say, yeah, but there's no resolution, then you go back and you get the resolution and you make the political decision whether to put your members in the position at that point. So it's really a function, I think, of talking to more than one audience at a time. And I am certain that what Quinta is about to say is, yeah, but what you lose in this is all the moral power of the impeachment. At risk of being predictable, yes. <laughs> Look, you describe that as unprincipled, which I think is a fair descriptor, and I don't even... But I mean it as praise. No, that's what I mean. <laughs> even if you say it as praise, is now really the time when you want to be unprincipled? We were just talking about how the United States has completely abandoned any pretense at caring at all about human rights around the world. The president is not upholding his promise to support and defend the Constitution no one is at home. <laughs> and my point is that in the same way that, you know, in The Godfather, there's the discussion of the need for the wartime consigliere, right, who will help you in times of war, who's different from your peacetime consigliere, who has a different set of skills. This is not a time of normal politics. This is a time where the Constitution is facing I don't want to call it a constitutional crisis, but there is some kind of tipping point that we are headed towards, that we perhaps are already on the brink of. And I think that in that situation, when the stakes are so high, when the stakes may even be in the long term, will the country continue to be a representative democracy or not, that Members of Congress who take their oath of office seriously have some kind of an obligation to act on matters of principle to a greater extent than they would under other circumstances. 
I also recognize that it is easy for me to say that because I'm not Nancy Pelosi. I don't have to worry about my caucus pulling me in a thousand different directions. I don't have to get reelected. But I also think that it is because I don't have those pressures on me that it is incumbent upon me to yell about this as loudly as I can to keep putting pressure from the side that I believe on so that that's factored into the inevitable horse trading analysis that will, of course, take place because Congress is Congress. You know, I I don't think it's about horse trading. I think that what Ben sketched out, and I would add to that only, that Pelosi is not only balancing the new members from swing districts against the institutional interest in oversight and constraint on the executive, she's also balancing that part of the Democratic caucus that is more activist and does want impeachment. And if she doesn't hold the Democratic caucus together and keep it uh, healthy, large, and in the majority, then none of what might happen on impeachment matters because impeachment will not go anywhere. And so I, I think that what she's doing isn't trading horses. She's threading a needle. And I think she's threaded it very carefully in precisely the way that Ben laid out. And so that's that's number one. Number two is, with all respect for arguments about morality and principle, morality and principle hit the road through practical political mechanisms that are enshrined in law and in practice. And a lot of the conversation that we've had over the last several years about this administration is about the way it flouts the law and alters norms. Okay, at the end of the day, the crisis that you're describing as incipient and must be forestalled through a loud, strong call for impeachment, that crisis is already here. We're already into it. And so if I'm Nancy Pelosi and I'm thinking about my constitutional responsibility to protect this democratic republic, I'm thinking about whether Trump gets reelected. And I'm thinking that at the end of the day, what my role is, is to put in place the pieces that hedge against that outcome. Because the best answer for this Democratic Republic is to see this man voted out of office. And I am doing everything I can to make that happen. And so are all my members. And I need to have round two ready to go. And there's no way, even if they voted impeachment tomorrow, that they would get it done before next year's election. So I think this is the only realistic strategy for her. If you want impeachment at all, it has to go this way. Scott, last word. Yeah, I mean, I'll step in here and just the thing I keep coming back to when I think about this question really is, is that I think there's some Mueller report credibly describes really horrible things the president and the Trump administration has done. I do not think those are probably on the top five or maybe even top ten list of the actual horrible things this administration is doing, many of which are completely legal or within its authority. But it's making a lot of choices that are terrible for Americans, terrible for the country as a whole, terrible for the broader international community. And so you do have to make a balancing act. There's a question here. I have no doubt there is a cost to certain principles uh, that many people hold dear, including myself, in allowing illegal activity to go forward without making the strongest possible response to it, which is what I hear in Quinta's argument, that as a matter of principle, we need to stand as firm as possible to defend these sacred principles. 
But on the flip side, you do have to deal with the fact that politically, people realistically, experts, people who know more about polling and politics than frankly I do, or at least I'm willing to defer them on it, think there is a real risk that it will amplify that capacity of the president staying in office. And Congress is in a unique constitutional position in this. The president's job is to make sure the law be faithfully executed. It's the court's job to interpret it. The Congress's role really is to pursue and establish the policies, pursue the better interest of the country. And that is something that's in its judgment about what the next step is. And so I don't think that there is the same obligation there. If it really thinks that the country is going to be put in a worse position through that action, meaning that the worst position by compromising the ability to remove the president that far outweighs – the harm of which far outweighs the benefit gained by maintaining a more principled stance, I'm not 100 percent sure that it has an obligation to pursue that, legal, ethical or otherwise. Um, it's a difficult decision. It's not one I envy the people have to make it. But that's where I ultimately come out on it. And that brings us to object lessons. Tammy, what you got for us this week? Oh, so, you know, watching these crises unfold in Kashmir and Hong Kong and the sense that the United States simply wasn't relevant to these major international crises reminded me of an article I read a couple of weeks ago by Corey Shockey uh, in The Atlantic called The Bill for America First is Coming Due. And she she wrote this in response to um, two decisions by close U.S. allies Australia and the UK to uh, engage in military efforts um, in areas of interest to them that exclude the United States. Uh, in Austra- the Australian one has to do with um, maritime. Well, they both have to do with maritime security. One in in uh, East Asia and one in the Gulf. And you know, Corey's point is that the Trump administration has sufficiently alienated core American allies that they are now hedging against the United States by building security structures that don't involve us. And it seems to me that what we've seen in Kashmir and Hong Kong over the last week is another piece of the same picture, that we're seeing major global powers engage in seriously destabilizing choices um, without any reference to the United States or how it might react and without any reference, as we've been discussing, to international accountability. And so I think Corey's article is is worth rewriting in in that regard. And it also um, Nick Danforth, who's a colleague at the German Marshall Fund, tweeted out today that, you know, this Kashmir crisis is a good reminder that for those who think American imperialism is the source of all the world's problems, it doesn't mean that that all those problems will go away if the American imperium declines, you know, and and so I, I think that's worth reflecting on as well. Quinta, what you got? I have something very cool, which is kind of a bombshell historical discovery, if I can use those two terms next to one another, by the colleague of a friend of mine. Uh, so this is by Hillary Lynn. She's a PhD student in history at Berkeley and is doing her dissertation work on uh, South Africa. And basically, through archival research, discovered documents making clear that KwaZulu, during the transition to democracy in South Africa, essentially the Inkatha Freedom Party, the Zulu Party, was more or less, one might say, bought off uh, to join the 1994 election and sort of 
solidify the transition to democracy through this land deal that gave an enormous amount of land to the Zulu king instead of incorporating it under the national government's control. This is a pretty big deal. The IFP leader in question, uh, Mangosutha Buthalezi, has long denied that this took place. Uh, and this is the first time that there's really documentary evidence, as in literally the minutes of the meetings uh, have come forward to show that that appears not to be true. Buthalezi has apparently threatened to sue her, which I understand is some kind of a great honor among South African historians. We'll, we'll put the link in the show notes. Uh, she's written it up for a South African paper, and it's pretty cool. Scott, what you got? Well, I, I know have, what you've got. Exactly. Well, I have an object lesson for, for both Ben and I, really, uh, as we've been up to uh, some of our usual mischief using the Freedom of Information Act. There was an interesting lawsuit covered uh, released last week that we posted on Lawfare uh, by a prominent former FBI agent, Mr. Peter Strzok, specifically alleging a number of things, but among them, the possibility that the FBI has been targeting FBI employees who are alleged to have made cr- comments critical of the president for punishment at a different rate than other presidential candidates or presidents in recent history. We saw this allegation and thought it was something worth digging into. Uh, So today we're in the process of submitting a number of FOIA requests, seeking information on these. And we've got a legal case we think to be able to get them uh, that we uh, may be – hopefully we won't have to use, but we're ready to use if we need to. And so hopefully in the near future we'll have a better sense about how the FBI has historically enforced its policies against political comments, particularly comments critical of past presidential and presidential candidates and how that compares to what it's doing today. So also stay tuned this week for some fun FOIA stuff uh, that was going to have to remain obscure for now. And that brings us to the end of the show, Rational Security. And I wrote down the credits this time so Woo-hoo. that I'm, I'm, I'm not going to stumble over them. Rational <laughs> Security is brought to you by Lawfare. You can find our show page on the Lawfare website. And then when Shane is not here, I don't even have to argue with him about how to pronounce that (laughs) or how he should say that. You can also go to the Lawfare store and buy our merch, cool rational security merch, cool Lawfare merch. Maybe if you're really nice, we'll produce some merch for the report. And what's the website? The website is thelawfarestore.com. Amazing. So easy to remember. And Shane is not here to contradict me. (laughs) Our audio engineer this week is Jacob Schultz. Rational Security is produced and edited by Jen Patya Howell. You can support Rational Security and all of Lawfare's podcasts and work by going to our support page. Our music this week is drawn from the new album of the group by Narendra Modi and Xi Jinping, the authoritarian chauvinists. The the album is called Internal Matters. Yeah, I got, I got a laugh. Is that no, an emo good. album? That's good. No, because we were... Eat your heart out, Jane. I think it's, it's kind of emo. So, uh, <laughs> actually, no. We're all uh, on a serious note about our music. You know, when she's not playing piano for the Lawfare podcast and for Rational Security. Sophia Yan is actually out there in Hong Kong reporting on these protests for The Telegraph in England. And, you know, that is a uh, still a dangerous job these days. And so, serious shout out to... Those who do not respect that these are internal matters and report on them anyway. And 
On that serious note, we'll talk to you again next week. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. 